This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. Okay, so if you have a Bible, turn over to Matthew chapter 1. Hopefully we'll be in a series for a number of months. I haven't counted up how many yet, but we'll be here for a while as we walk through the story of Jesus. I think it's a great place for us as a church to start as we just capture our affections around the person and work of Jesus. And so we'll just hear the story of what he's come to do. But Matthew starts with a genealogy. And if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, it's maybe a strange place for you to begin. Maybe you thought, oh, I'm going to be um, curious about Christianity. I'm going to ask some questions. So I'm just going to start reading the Bible. And this is the first thing you hit, and it's almost like a record scratch. Uh, or maybe it's something you just kind of speed read through, or maybe you have read it kind of like a movie credit. You just kind of scan through it real fast, ready to get on to the meat. But I think Matthew actually has something for us in this text that I want us to walk through. But, but, but you probably have a strange kind of relationship or opinion about things like genealogies and family trees. So, so we live in a situation where we're really just like two generations away from being forgotten. So I had this horrible moment like a few nights ago, sitting on the couch with Adrian talking, and I said, I don't know what my mom's dad's name is. He died when she was 14 years old. I've only heard a handful of stories. And about 30 minutes later, we got there. We kind of remembered, went, oh yeah, it's Lewis. And mom, if you're watching, I think it's Lewis. Please forgive me. Um, but, but I was in this space going, man, that's, that's not even my great-grandfather. That's my grandfather. And I know older people are, are much more in tune with their past, but like the stories you need to tell are really, really important. And as people pass along, we have to capture stories because it shapes who we are. And so on one end, we're never very far away from being forgotten by our families. And we actually have a longing to know our families. So there's this uptick in things like Ancestry.com where we're curious about the past and who we're related to and how we can find out kind of our stories. And I have a friend who says, man, I'm never going to do Ancestry.com because I'll only find out bad things. If I'm related to somebody famous, I would already know that. What I'm going to find out on Ancestry.com is that I have some dark past and some like some serial killer in my family history. I don't even want to know that. So, so maybe you look at your past with something like that where you go like, man, I, I would love to avoid my past. I don't, I don't want to know about my past. And I'm trying to actually change my past. And what I inherited from my family, I'd love to actually leave behind. You, you may have a really interesting relationship with family trees. And kids, in your little packet, there's actually a, a family tree drawing there for you to just maybe spend some time with your mom and dad and kind of work through, hey, where did I come from? And who, who are the people I'm related to? Because it actually does shape us. And so a counselor would say we should do kind of history work of our, our families because it's not just who you are, who your parents were, it's who your parents' parents' parents were that shapes so much of what you're afraid of and how you respond in anger and what you long for and what you think you need to be whole. Like our families really do shape us. And so the Bible knows that, understands that. So I think it's one of the reasons why Matthew kind of starts in that place to root us in history to say this is the family. Jesus didn't just, just pop out of nowhere. He comes from a place, and this long list of names to a Jew would mean a lot. It's actually a really impressive list. It's a pretty complicated list. It's kind of a tangled list, but, but in this list you see the way God has been working for a long, long, long time. So Matthew has some intentions for us, and he could have started any way he wanted to. Like the Gospels are all historical accounts, like they're reliable historical accounts, but they're theological historical accounts. They're written to tell us something about God. And so all the four Gospels have some differences in how they tell the story, not because the story is not reliable, but because they're trying to highlight some different things. And so, so Luke has a genealogy, but it's not till chapter three. And Mark just starts off saying, this is the story of Jesus, and he's off and running. 
Uh, and John actually begins in a very similar way, saying, hey, in the beginning, right? This is the way this starts. And this is the, be- the book of the beginnings is the way you would translate verse 1. John says, hey, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God. The Word was with God. He just starts kind of in a one-sentence genealogy to tie Jesus all the way back to eternity. So, so every gospel starts a different way. So we should ask as we begin this journey with Matthew, why does he start the way that he starts? And again, we have this strange relationship with genealogies, but I think Matthew's doing something very, very, very intentional. And as you think about even modern examples of genealogy, I tried to rack my brain for illustrations. I got the Ancestry.com, but, but I thought about that movie, 2001, Go With Me There, Heath Ledger is starring in A Knight's Tale. Do you remember that movie? It has rock music set in like medieval times. It's kind of a strange movie. I, I don't think I won any awards, but, but it's a family favorite of ours. In that movie, what you have is this character, Will Thatcher, who's a peasant. And the question in the movie is, can someone change their stars, is the way they say it. Can someone move out of a peasant station into royalty? And so the long theme of the movie is this jousting tournament that only royalty can be a part of. And so there's a moment of crisis early in the movie, and then this Will Thatcher character kind of pretends to be royal. He comes in to another character who writes this four-generation kind of lineage for him. He makes it up. Now, all of a sudden, Will Thatcher is... Um, Ulrich von Lichtenstein from Gelderland, which doesn't sound made up at all. No, no way that sounds made up. So he now goes and competes as Ulrich von Lichtenstein. And he needed a family line to validate himself so that he could actually compete. It's a fascinating little story. I don't know how you think about your background. I mean, if you look back maybe with shame, maybe there's things in your family history that you're trying to forget. Maybe you've actually moved across the country and you're trying to start over. Maybe you're new to Kansas City because you're trying to avoid something with your past. We have an interesting history, but there's something about knowing where we come from that shapes who we currently are, and I think it offers us some hope. So I want to walk into what Matthew says, and I want to just do it with those simple questions of of what and how and why. What does Matthew want to tell us with this genealogy, and then how does he tell us that, and then why is that even important for us? So, So a what, a how, and a why is where we'll go. And as we think about that, I think Matthew in some ways, has taken all the guesswork out for us. So as I study a passage, I ask, what's the main point of the text? And then from there, I say, how do we need to hear that main point? Maybe where we be resistant to that and try to build a sermon out of that. But the main point of the text should be the main point of the sermon. And the great news is that Matthew doesn't hide anything from us. He's pretty upfront, pretty straightforward. One theologian said he's putting all of his theological cards on the table right away. So look with me in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 1. He just wants you to know right away, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Just starts, hey, what am I trying to do here? I'm trying to tell you this is Jesus Christ. And I don't know if you're familiar with the Bible, but Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's actually a title. People were longing for the Christ, for the Messiah to come. And so in the very first verse, Matthew says, I'm telling you this story because I want you to know that Jesus is your only hope. He's the Messiah. He's what you've longed for. He's the one that you actually need and you desire. He says from very one, Verse, verse, this is the genealogy of Jesus. He is the Christ, and he's the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he bookends it again. If you drop down to verse 16, he says, And then Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. And he'll say it again in 17. So Matthew starts and says, hey, what's he doing? Why does he give us this? He wants you to know that Jesus is the Christ. You have longings. You have desires. They had longings and desires. God had made promises to his people that one day he would send one like the son of David, one in the line of Abraham. And Matthew says, this is the one you have 
been longing for. The way he starts even is very fascinating. It has like a, a hint to the way Genesis starts with this history of the origins of, he's trying to say the new creation has begun in this man, Jesus. Because what Matthew wants to do is as you're reading the pages that come, he doesn't want you wondering who Jesus is. So the punchline at the end that what you needed the Messiah to do was actually die for you, that that would catch your attention. So this is not Lord of the Rings where you wonder who Aragon is at the beginning and you wonder who this ranger is and all of a sudden you find out he's the king. Matthew says, no, I want you to know he's the king from the very beginning. The shocker will be as we journey through this thing and they want a political king to see that Jesus came for something much, much deeper. Even on the next page here, he'll say, this Christ came to die to forgive his people of their sins. That is where this thing is moving. And so Matthew wants to say to us, hey, this is the one you've always been longing for. And he roots it in two realities, right? Go back to verse one, the son of David. This is the promised king. Actually, the promise was made to David that there would always be one on his throne. And so a passage like Psalm 89 says this, my steadfast love I will keep forever on him, David. And my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever in his throne as the days of the heavens. And in 2 Samuel, he says this to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body. And I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So God had made promises that there would be one in the line of David who was going to come and rule and reign, not just for a season, not just in a long place that brought about peace, but for forever. So he says, this is the one coming from that family. He wants to establish that for us. And he labors to say, this one is beautiful. We think about Isaiah and the, the way that it describes this coming king who's going to come and be a wonderful counselor and a mighty God and an everlasting father and a prince of peace and the increase of his government. There, there'll be no end of that. Right? Those things we remember at Christmas time about this Savior, the people were longing for King David to come. Right? A descendant from David to come. And you think about Roman oppression, you think about where they were, they wanted someone to come and overthrow Rome. So Matthew says, hey, right up front, this is the one you've been looking for. This is the one in line of King David. But not just in line of King David as a, as a royal king. He's the one who is the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham. Right? So the son of David the son of Abraham, he names those guys right up front, right? These are really important moments for God's people. The Abrahamic covenant given back in Genesis 12 was that God would bless them. They would be his people, and then they would bless the entire world, that God would use them to be a blessing to everyone. So this Abrahamic promise says that Jesus is the one who's the fulfillment of that as well, which would foreshadow for us Matthew 28, right? This great commission at the end of the book where God says to his followers, Jesus says to his followers, I want you to go out now and make disciples of all the nations. So just drop this Abrahamic covenant and say, this is the way that God is going to bless the entire world. It's through this one man, Jesus. So he starts and says, hey, I want you to know this. I want you to know who Jesus is. And I want you to know he comes from David's royal line. And he is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. That may not mean a whole lot to us right now in 2020. But if you were a Jew in the first century, then this is everything you'd ever hoped for. To have one man come finally. Remember, it's been 400 years of silence historically for God's people. Now comes on the scene a ton of hope. Matthew doesn't want you to be confused of who Jesus is. So that's what he wants to say. Simply put it that way. This is the Christ. He's what you've longed for. That's what he wants to say. Now let's talk about how he tells us that. So we'll go to verses 2 to 17 to see how he actually does that. Right, And the bookends really matter. So, so the main thing he wants to say is I want you to see that Christ is the king. He does that intentionally so we don't miss it. 
Because the rest of these names really matter, but none of them matter if he's not actually the Messiah. This long family history at where you come from has an impact on you, but it can't save you. You need actually a savior. You need someone who comes as the Messiah, the anointed one. So he starts and stops with these bookends. That's how, first how he tells us. And then he tells us through a series of structures. So look with me in verse 17. He says this. He's just going to give us a structure. He says, so all the generations from Abraham to David, they were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, there was 14 generations. And so you read that after this long list and go, oh, Matthew put a structure in place to tell us something. There's actually some gaps in these genealogies. It's totally legitimate the way he did it. He's not lying to us to, to organize it this way, but he's highlighting for us there's a plan and there's a purpose. Matthew wants to say Jesus is the Christ, and he wants to tell you how that happens is through a plan and a purpose. To have these generations organized in three sets of 14 is to speak to us that God's always had a plan. This is not plan B. This is the way God's designed it, which is such good news when you wonder, God, what the heck are you doing? There's years in this list of genealogy where people are suffering, where they're in the wilderness, where they're in slavery, where they're struggling with infertility, where they, they've heard God make promises, and it's decades before they see them, if they ever see them before they die. There's a lot of longing in this genealogy. So for Matthew to say, hey, what I want you to see is there always has been a purpose and a design. God didn't just come out of nowhere. He comes from, from David's line and Abraham's line, and he comes with a purpose. And in that space, he doesn't just come with a purpose. He comes through individual people, right? There's a design, and it's a redemptive design, and it's the redemption of people. So this list of names really matters to us. So I'm actually going to try to read it. So we don't know each other super well yet. I actually have some dyslexia. So reading out loud is actually pretty challenging for me. So now I got your attention. You're like, ooh, this will be fun. See what he does with these. So you got a little tomato, tomato thing. Give me a little bit of grace. I've actually practiced this. I thought about just like um, playing the recording and going Millie Vanilli style, like lip syncing this and see if you would catch on. But we're going to try to work through this because I think these people matter. If Matthew records them, I think in a small way, God just wants you to know, hey, these people matter to me. I want you to, I want you to know about them. And they're not much different than you in some ways. What you'll see is peasants and kings. You'll see prostitutes. You'll see patriarchs. You'll see people that struggled. You'll see widows. You'll see people that didn't know where they came from. You'll see people who, who lost their way along the way. You'll see people who were violated, people who were taken advantage of. You'll see lots of names in this list. Some you'll recognize, some you won't, but here we go. As he's saying, this redemptive line comes, it comes through people. It says, so Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerahah and Tamar, by Tamar. And Perez was the father of Hezron. And Hezron was the father of Ram. And Ram was the father of Abinadab. Hey kids, by the way, if you get all these names in your word search, don't say anything until the end. Fruit snacks at the end. Hang on to them. But I'm trying to help you out here as we go. Abinadab, right, the father of Abinadab. And the father of Nashon. And Nashon the father of Solomon. And Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab, which is a name maybe you remember. And Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. It's a book of the Bible named after her. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, which is Bathsheba, which maybe is a name you're familiar with. And Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, 
and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brother at the time of the deportation of Babylon. So he breaks stride now and locates them in the exile. And after the deportation of Babylon, uh, Jeconiah, and the father of man, yep, and Shetizil and Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of, <laughs> I'm losing it, Abed, yep, yep, and the father of Elikim, and Elikim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Elihud, and Elihud, the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. And so you have these generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. All right, that's an exhausting list, but here's what I want you to see. Those people really matter. So kids, I don't know if you've ever done like one of those living history exhibits at school. Maybe like you study a time of history and then you dress up and you have maybe a display board behind you and maybe you have a little button on your, on your costume and someone pushes it and you say, hi, I'm Harriet Tubman. I was part of the Underground Railroad. Or they push the button and they say, hi, I'm George Washington Carver. I'm a scientist. And so you get a chance to kind of tell this story. Some of these names maybe you're not very familiar with, but these are amazing stories of redemption. And when you do those living histories, what you realize is these were like real people, people like you, people who struggled. And what we read about in a couple of paragraphs of a history book is actually decades worth of like growth and longing and beauty and a lot of jagged edges. In this list, what you see is a lot of beauty and a lot of brokenness, which is the human story. I think Matthew on purpose designed this to get us to David and to Abraham for sure in a legitimate way, but theologically to say to us, hey, God is the kind of God who works through people just like you. People that were taken advantage of, people that were prostitutes, people that, that actually were widows, people that didn't know who their father was, people who, who struggled to actually make it in this life. And people who were given a whole lot, people who knew they were over their head, people who had struggle living up to their father's name. People who were really successful and people who lost everything. And actually people who... Throughout their life, this reference to the deportation of Babylon is people who were so rebellious they had to be removed from God's kind of land and his promises in that moment. That's who God has been working with. So all across that spectrum, then you should be able to find yourself in that list. You see people with these broken, beautiful stories. And Matthew is saying the Son of Man came, the Messiah came, the Anointed One came. He came with design and purpose and he came through individual so that you might see your own story in that list and not in a narcissistic way like this list is about you I don't mean that I don't mean like this is something that you should like find yourself at the center of but it's an invitation I really struggle to kind of make ourselves the center of everything so like when you take a family photo right isn't the first thing you do look at yourself of how you look we recently took some photos and it was almost impossible to find and there's just four of us to find a picture that all of us liked how we looked and everybody else liked how they looked in that picture for the record, my hair was perfect in all of the pictures. But, but you struggle to know, like, how do I look in this place? I tend to make myself the center. So I don't mean make yourself the center of the story. Jesus is the center of the story, right? The way Matthew even has bracketed it. But you're invited to see your version of brokenness, your version of need, your kind of longing in this story. And there's maybe just four people I want to highlight. There's four women named before we get to Mary that I think is really significant, right? This would not be normal in ancient worlds in a patriarchal society to highlight women. 
nor these kind of women. All of these women were either taken advantage of sexually, they were abused, that they sold their bodies. They actually weren't Jews. These are people who are Gentiles. They're outside the covenant family, right? So, so Tamar is probably a Canaanite. Um, Rahab is from Jericho. Ruth is a Moabite. Bathsheba is married to Uriah, who's a Hittite. So, so these are people who aren't even part of the family line. So now just stop for a second. He's telling you on purpose, right? None of these words are on action. Every single word in the Bible is there for a purpose. So he stops and he highlights these four women. Why? Because your brokenness matters. People that are on the margins matter to God. And everyone is welcomed into the family of God. Before Jews think, hey, I'm special because of my family lineage, what you see highlighted with these four women who are named is these are people who are on the outside. They're not just like tolerated in the community and shown charity. They're at the center of the story. And now Rahab is not the prostitute. Rahab is the mother of Boaz. Wow. That God changes and redeems and heals our story. But Bathsheba isn't just the one who, who was violated by King David. She's actually the mother of Solomon. Tamar didn't just sleep with her father-in-law. But she actually was in the family line. And Ruth wasn't just this widow. She, she was the mother of Obed who gave birth actually to King David a few generations later. To see in your story God rewriting and redeeming. right? These tragic stories of Gentile women being highlighted, I think is so beautiful and instructive for us of how we see ourselves and how we see other people. So that's, that's the way he's telling us that, right? What's he saying? Christ is the king. How does he tell us that? He tells us through these individual stories. There's design, there's brokenness, and there's an invitation from those who are on the outside to come in. So let's just ask as we get ready to go, what does this mean for us? Well, first, if it's time to tell us that Jesus is the king, he's the anointed one, you have to stop and deal with Jesus as the king, the anointed one. And you're like, man, I don't even know any of these names. You didn't even pronounce them very well. I'm totally lost at this point. But here's the point of this passage is that Jesus actually came to rescue you. So how do you apply a passage like this? It's saying Jesus came to rescue you. You stop and ask, have I let Jesus come and rescue me? Am I looking to him as my salvation and my hope, right? Nothing else really matters if we don't go to that place first, right? That's a massive application. Jesus will always be the highlight of every story. And there is really no application outside of that that we should even care about. So we ask, what do I do with Jesus? How have I actually encountered him? And then by showing this kind of messy, jagged edges, this beauty and this brokenness in order, you can make application from the way Matthew designed this to say to you, even when you don't know what God is doing, and it's been years since the things you've prayed for have come to pass, whether it's a wayward child or it's a sick spouse or it's things that just aren't the way they're supposed to be, even deep loss, right? This repetition of the names and then this breaking stride to talk about the deportation of Babylon is to talk about like overt sin and rebellion. For you to stop and go like, man, how do I think about God being with me even in places where I've totally blown it? This is not where they were victimized. This is where they willfully sinned against God to the extent they had to be removed from the land. So where is that in your story that Jesus actually came to heal? To name it like that is to say what you needed was your sins forgiven and he came to actually reconcile and to heal you. It's fascinating. He goes from King David to where they lost the king in Babylon back to King Christ is how he ends those three couplets or, or those, 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 those triads, which is fascinating to think about the way God wants to communicate to you that he loves you and he longs for your reconciliation and redemption.
And then again, to see yourself in that story is an invitation to actually look to him and trust him, to bring your longings to him. And then it's an invitation to those who feel like they're on the outside, whether you've never believed or you've believed and have drifted to hear that God is the kind of God who comes for outsiders is a massive application for you to to turn to him. Now let your shame or your fear or your doubts get in the way of you actually responding to Jesus. Because here's the deal. The Bible says everyone is welcome to Jesus, but you're not welcome on your own terms. Matthew's been saying, this is the Messiah. This is the king. It's not just like a teacher who had some good ideas. He's the king that you actually have to respond to as king. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So there's an invitation to all to come, but you have to come through Jesus as the one who you'll stand in front of and give an account for your life. And here is the beauty of the gospel. That one who stands as your judge took your judgment on himself on the cross as a way to forgive you of your sins so that you could be free and forgiven and reconciled. This genealogy has all kinds of brokenness and all kinds of beauty because that is what the gospel is about. A broken people being reconciled and redeemed and changed and healed. And so Matthew builds his genealogy to introduce us to this man, Jesus, so we don't have any questions about who he is and we get in touch with our own needs and longings so that we might turn to him and look to him as our Savior. There's an invitation in this, but it's rooted in this kind of warning Hey, something about you needs to change because this is the king. You don't just come on your terms in front of the king. There's an invitation here, but there's something about this that, that says to us, hey, you need to be brought into this family line. And here's the great news of what Christ does for us. In faith, you're welcomed into the family. There's enough hint in this genealogy of these outsiders who are brought into the family line to say God has always welcomed people who were non-Jews. It wasn't ever through blood that, oh, that the people of God were established. It was always by faith the New Testament would tell us. And so you're invited to join the family of God by faith. And you have to do something about that. You're not automatically born into that family of faith. This is Jesus talking with Nicodemus, who's a religious leader who has all the pedigree. He would read this list and go, yep, those are my people. That's where I belong. And Jesus says to him, hey, you must be born again. That phrase is kind of weird for us, but it means you have to have two genealogies. You have to have a physical genealogy of your birth, and you have to have a spiritual genealogy where you were reborn. And it throws Nicodemus for a loop. He can't quite wrap his mind around it because he thought through his family line and his good behavior and his performance, that's what made him right with God. When Nicodemus is confronted with what we're confronted with, that we actually have to respond to Jesus by faith to be reborn. And the good news of that is that it's available to all of us. So there's this invitation to join this family. And we can join the family because of what Christ has done. He made it possible as he died on the cross, which is why we celebrate communion every week, to remember how we were invited into the family. I started with this story of this movie from, from A Knight's Tale. It's a really predictable story. So uh, he, of course, is super successful. He's the best jouster there possibly is. Ulrich van Lichtenstein climbs through the ranks. He's in the championship just as you would have predicted. It's as predictable as like a 1980s rom-com. It's exactly the same thing. You know exactly where it's going. He gets to that apex spot, and then, of course, his family lineage is discovered to be false. He's actually thrown in the stocks, and he's about to be flogged and punished. And then, in a twist, as you would expect a twist, King Edward comes, who he had jousted multiple times with Ulrich von Lichtenstein, King Edward comes, and because he had shown nobility in the jousting ring, 
King Edward says, my historians have done deep work longer than anyone has ever had records, and I've discovered a family line of Gelderland, von Lichtenstein, yada, 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 and it's irrevocable. He is now royalty, right? And then you go, oh, yeah, you can't change your stars. Roll the credits. But in that moment, what you see is this king could pronounce this guy okay. It's a silly movie from 2001. Better than that is Jesus not just giving us his word, but becoming the word for us. And not just saying we can be in the family line, but dying and coming in through his blood into the family tree. The gospel is the good news, not that God is just passing over our sins, but he died for them as a way to make us acceptable and welcomed into the family. That is what we celebrate. It's what communion is all about. It's what the Christian faith is all about. And it's what Matthew puts on the T for us as he begins his gospel. He is the kind of God you've always been waiting for and longing for. Christ, the center of this whole thing. He welcomes outsiders. Find your story in this story so you can receive what he came to offer you. You can be honest about your brokenness and your sin so that you can actually turn to him. Because Jesus will say in John chapter 1, or John chapter 1 says that all who believed in him, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, but by the will of the flesh or the will of man, but by God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us We have seen his glory, the glory of the Father and the Son, who is full of grace and truth. Jesus came actually to to invite you into God's story, which is where I want to stop today. for joining us online. Leeway Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com.